Hope Awakens. So glad you've joined us tonight again. If you're joining for the first time, we're happy to have you with us and welcome. Last Wednesday night's program, Survival Keys for Challenging Times, was just amazing. If you missed it, make sure you see it by going below the screen you're watching now to the Catch Up Program section and click on program number 13. Tonight's program, The Next Superpower, sounds pretty interesting. But before we go to John Bradshaw, let's see what questions Robbie has for us tonight. Good evening, Robbie. Looking forward to hearing the questions and answers tonight. Good evening, Rebecca. Great to be with you and with our viewers tonight. Some really good questions once again. Question number one. Didn't Jesus drink alcoholic wine on the cross? Now, that's a good question. But notice what the Bible actually says in Matthew 27, verse 34. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Jesus refused to drink it because he believed his body was the temple of God, and he needed his mind clear in order to save you and me eternally. So clearly Jesus understood the principle of alcohol not being good for our bodies. Question number two. I didn't realize the Bible addressed caring for our health. I thought it was just concerned with spirituality. Well, many people think that, but God loves us and wants us to have good health as well. Notice what the Bible says in 3 John verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. The Bible is full of scientific health principles. For example, it talks about hygiene with hand washing and quarantining long before modern medicine understood it or used it. Do you know that Jesus spent more time healing people than preaching? If the body wasn't important, he would not have worried about that part. But the Bible clearly views man as a four-dimensional being. Notice this verse in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom, that's mental, and stature, that's physical, and in favor with God, spiritual, and man, social. These four dimensions are interconnected, so that one area impacts the others. For example, if you worry a lot, dealing with the mind, it will likely take effect with you physically in some way. Like you may not want to eat or maybe you're eating too much or maybe it's actually causing you some sort of stomach problems. So there's definitely a connection and the Bible is very interested in our physical health. Question number three. In Matthew 25 verse 46, Jesus said, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How can John say hell is not eternal? Another great question. But you'll notice that the punishment is eternal, not the punishing. In other words, it is the effect of the fire that are eternal, not the burning on and on and on that is eternal. The people cease to exist for eternity because the fire has totally consumed them. Well, that's all our questions for tonight, Rebecca. Back to you. Thanks, Robbie. Don't forget, if you have a question, please send it to us. There is no time to answer all of them on our live program, but if we don't get to yours, someone will contact you with an answer. Okay, well, let's get straight to John Bradshaw as he talks tonight about the next superpower. 
Come on, let's pray together now. Our Father, as we open the Bible, we ask for your blessing. We thank you for your presence. and We pray for clarity in our minds. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. It was June of 1987. President of the United States was Ronald Reagan, a former actor, former governor of California, elected president in 1980, re-elected in 1984. In 1981, President Reagan was shot outside a hotel in Washington, D.C. The reason he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest was because the only time he would be outside and vulnerable to an assassin would be right after a speech. He would only have to walk for 30 feet. But that's when it happened. Six years later, President Reagan, the man they called the Great Communicator, was in a city that today does not exist. He was in West Berlin a city which had been divided since 1961 by the Berlin Wall. As East Germany was very closely linked to the Soviet Union, President Reagan took the opportunity to use his speech to address the Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev. The speech is notable today for a now famous line, a line that almost wasn't included in the speech. However, President Reagan liked the line. He said, let's leave it in. He began in, or he said in his speech, there is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek the prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate, the crowd cheered wildly. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Seems strange now. East Germany, Soviet Union, West Berlin, East Berlin. At the end of the Second World War, Germany was divided into four zones under the control of the United States, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. Berlin was also split among the four powers. The American, British, and French sectors formed West Berlin. The Soviet sector became East Berlin. After World War II, communist governments friendly to the Soviet Union were established across Europe. Countries such as Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria and Romania. East Germany was created in 1949. From a Soviet point of view, it was advantageous to have a friendly cluster of countries nearby, owing to the establishment of NATO in 1949, set up to provide security for Western nations against the Soviets. And all of this is what was known as the Cold War, the United States and its allies in a standoff with the Soviet Union and its allies. President Reagan spoke up that day, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And just over two years later, Owing to a variety of factors, the Berlin Wall fell. As unlikely as it seemed not many years earlier, European communism fell. It fell in Poland in 1989, same year in Hungary. The Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia saw communism defeated there in 89. Bulgaria ousted communism in 1990. The death of President Nikolai Ceausescu on Christmas Day in 1989 meant change was coming to Romania. Remember, Yugoslavia was not long ago a country made up of states that are now countries in their own right. Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Slovenia, 
countries all today remembering that Macedonia is officially named North Macedonia now. Albania was a communist country. So what we know is there have been epic political changes over the last few decades. Unimaginable. It reflects that human beings have this almost boundless desire for control. We've seen great empires over the years. The Roman Empire, stretching from a Hadrian's Wall right over to the Middle East. But now the Roman Empire is no more. Just a cluster of ruins, really. It was said the sun never set on the British Empire, an empire that governed more than a quarter of the world. The Russian Empire, the Spanish Empire, they came and went. The Maya built Chichen Itza. The Egyptians built the pyramids. The Inca built Machu Picchu. The Khmer Empire built Angkor Wat. But none of those empires exist today. Empires rise and fall. Today's undeniable superpower is the United States, a country that has grown militarily and economically in almost unbelievable ways in a very short time. From warring with Britain in 1812 and the civil war in the 1860s, the United States has wrestled with its own growing pains and internal strife to become what it is today, a truly global power. Today, the other major powers in the world would include Russia and China, But isn't it true that change can come quickly? Whoever would have predicted that something like a global pandemic caused by a simple virus would have had such a dramatic effect? What it'll mean for the balance of power in the world isn't known. No one's predicting it will bring about a shuffling of the global order. But things can change, and they do. So what will things look like as we enter the future? Of course, that's not something we can easily predict. But as we look at the Bible, we see there's a certain shifting of influence in the world and something is going to happen to influence the world and cause people to look in what might be for them a new direction. Revelation 13.3 speaks of a time when all the world marveled and followed a power that would have a huge influence in Earth's last days. The question of who or what will dominate Earth's final days can get muddled if your focus is in the wrong place. When Jesus came to the world, even his closest followers were thinking about things from a worldly viewpoint. That's reflected in this interesting request. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these my two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. My kingdom now is not from here. In John 6, right after he fed a large crowd with the little boy's lunch, we read, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and taken by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom, even as people in his day thought. The real battle for supremacy in this world today isn't a battle for international denomination, a domination. Go right back to the beginning with me. In heaven, Satan said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He came to earth tempted Adam and Eve and planted the seed of sin in this world. Now, what we see is the Tower of Babel, the rise of Egypt under the pharaohs. We see the rise of Babylon and then Medo-Persia, then Greece and then Rome. 
We read about the Assyrians who were profoundly cruel, the Philistines who seemed to constantly be plaguing Israel. Interesting. When Jesus came to the world, Israel was occupied by and dominated by Rome. But Jesus didn't take the battle to Rome because the battle for the world wasn't, still isn't, that kind of battle. Notice what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to reach hearts, to change minds, to influence people in the direction of his father. When he prayed to his father, he didn't talk about overthrowing kingdoms. He never said, Father, we got to get the Romans out of here. He said in John 17, 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And what was that? To glorify God. As Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Didn't come for political reasons. The political battles weren't the battles he came to fight. What we see is the rise and the fall of kingdoms. What we see is what takes place on the surface. But beneath the surface is where the real battle is taking place. And that's the battle for the hearts and minds of the people of the world. That's what the prophetic issues are about in earth's last days. The issues spoken of in the book of Revelation. Keep this in mind. This is part of the final gospel message to go to the world. We've got to look at it because it's part of the everlasting gospel. It's in Revelation 14. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And back a few chapters we read this. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. You see, humanity will be divided into these two groups. Those marked with the mark of the beast, and those sealed with the seal of God. And these signs reveal who has your heart, your loyalty. Because before Jesus comes back, it's going to be revealed who has chosen to follow Jesus and who has not. But let's look back at history. Because as we do, we see more clearly how the battle for the minds of the world will shape up. We're going to go back to the 16th century. Western civilization was rising. Spain became a great nation, an empire. The Portuguese empire was stretching across the globe. It was a time of great artistic accomplishments. Michelangelo created the David. Da Vinci finished the Mona Lisa. And just about 10 years after he did, Something else was brewing about 550 miles away. Up until this time, religious life in Western Europe had been governed by one church. And that church regulated life to quite an incredible degree. Many also felt that the church had drifted a long way from where it should have been, to the extent that in a small German town, something happened that would shake the world wasn't the sort of town you would think would be an epicenter for a spiritual revolution. Some called the place miserable. One duke called it a hole. One theologian wrote to a friend of the poor, miserable, filthy little town of Wittenberg. Today, very pleasant. Population that hovers around 50,000. 60 miles southeast of Berlin, not far from Poland, sits on the Elbe River, which starts in the Czech Republic and flows through Germany past Hamburg, and to the North Sea. Martin Luther was born about 60 miles or 100 kilometers away. His father wanted him to become a lawyer, 
and was appalled when her son entered a cloister to train to become a monk. But it was during his training as a priest, Luther discovered the Bible for the first time, a Latin Bible chained to a wall. He had never seen a whole Bible before. And as he read and studied the Gospels and the Epistles, his heart was moved. He was troubled by the sins in his personal life, wanted to find peace with God. So he did what the monastery said to do. He fasted, prayed for hours, even resorted to self-flagellation to rid himself of the evils of his human nature. He would later say that if the monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. But Luther had a mentor during his training, Johann von Staupitz. He would later say, if it had not been for Dr. Staupitz, I should have sunk in hell. Staupitz encouraged Luther by saying, instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in him, in the righteousness of his life, in the atonement of his death. Listen to the Son of God. He became man to give you the assurance of divine favor. Love him who first loved you. It was in 1508, the same year Michelangelo began painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, that he accepted a call to teach at the University of Wittenberg. As a young monk, he'd been living a very strict life. But when he arrived in Rome on a visit, he found that priests and monks and bishops were living in luxury and debauchery. Troubled him. One thing troubled him profoundly. Pope Julius II made a decree that a special indulgence was available to those who would walk up on their knees on what had become known as Pilate's Staircase. Staircase was believed to have been the very staircase Jesus walked on during his trial before Pontius Pilate. The church claimed it had been miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome. Of course it hadn't. Luther wanted the indulgence, so he climbed those stairs on his knees, got to the top, and then reflected on whether or not there'd been any point to it. It dawned on him he'd been practicing salvation by works. The idea that a person's deeds are not just a response to God's grace, but they earn favor with God. Luther considered what he'd seen in the Bible, that the just shall live by faith, where Paul quoted Habakkuk. That statement changed his life and his ministry. Not long after, the church embarked on a grand new project, the building of the largest church in the world, St. Peter's Basilica, in what is now the Vatican City. To help pay for the project, the church offered its people the chance to buy indulgences for their sins. That's a way to reduce the amount of punishment you have to go through for your sins. So while it's not exactly the same as buying salvation, you are buying pardon for sin, which flies in the face of the entire Bible. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Luther was troubled. His trouble deepened. A man named Johannes Tetzel was commissioned began visiting the cities of Germany, selling indulgences. That might have got by Luther in the past, but now he understood something of the message of God's grace. He found that the trafficking of God's grace was sacrilegious. How could anyone purchase pardon for sin or a reduction in their time in purgatory, even if there was a purgatory? He was strong in his opposition, wrote to the bishop and objected 
And then on October 31, 1517, he made his objections public by nailing them to the door of this church, the Castle Church in Wittenberg. We visited there to film our 500 series. If you've not seen 500 by It Is Written, you got to see it. The list of objections became known as his 95 Theses, and the Protestant Reformation was launched. Europe, the world, would never be the same again. So what's in the 95 Theses? The first one lays the groundwork for all the others, also for the basic message of the Reformation as far as salvation was concerned. First Thesis states this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Second one, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Later he wrote, therefore the Pope, when he uses the words plenary remission of all penalties, doesn't actually mean all penalties, but only those imposed by himself. Thesis 21. Thus, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Very interesting. Sacraments of the church or the purchase of indulgences. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Thesis 86. Why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica in St. Peter with his own money? rather than with the money of poor believers. It's easy to see why Luther became unpopular with his church. His teachings quickly spread throughout Germany. They soon reached Rome. He was tried by his church more than once. Efforts were made to remove him, to kill him. When he appeared before a very important body in the city of Worms in Germany, he said this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is as clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the Word of God, I cannot and I will not retract. For it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. His point was he couldn't submit his faith to a man, to a church leader. He said he would take his direction from the Bible. The church of the time wasn't doing that. The church was selling indulgences, giving people a chance to earn them in other ways. The church was dispensing forgiveness of sin. The church had taught that There was a place called purgatory, a place where people who weren't fit for heaven could go to be purged by fire of their sins. The church taught that God would torture the lost in hell forever without rest. The church was teaching that people could pray to saints in addition to praying to God through Jesus. Think about these points. Jesus found himself in a little strife with church leaders in his day. He said to a man one day, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? They were upset that Jesus was forgiving sin. Of course, there was nothing wrong with Jesus doing that. He was the Son of God. He was God. But for the church to do that? One challenge many people have seen over the years is that the church of Luther's day still claims to be able to forgive sin. Now, they'll tell you, 
it's God who forgives, we just dispense the sacrament. Except sacraments aren't biblical, and two, the Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Keep in mind, purgatory isn't biblical. It's taught as though it is, but there is no place God sends those unfit for heaven to be purged before going to heaven. And think of what that would be. What would it be if you could somehow be fitted for heaven by having your sins burned away? That would be salvation by works, not by grace. We're cleansed from our sins by the blood of Jesus, not by the fires of a mythical purgatory. The idea of an eternally burning hell is also not biblical. What are you saying about God if you suggest that he would burn people forever and ever without mercy? I had to be honest with myself one day because that's just what I'd been taught. And surely it, surely it isn't a, a matter of what seems right to us. You've got to go to the Bible. Look at what the Bible says. You must. When you do, you don't read that God will burn people forever and ever. We believe it because we were taught it. That's the only reason. Something else the church of Luther's day did. You remember we looked at this. Question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Here's the answer. Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday, and that's a teaching of Rome. And this, fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. That's serious. A church cannot change the law of God. So what you had over time was a move further and further away from the Bible for varying reasons. But people, and generally church people are what you'd graciously call good people, people moved away from the word of God, upstanding people. One tradition gives way to another. And behind it all, there's a power seeking to lead people away from the Bible, away from complete dependence on Jesus. It wasn't only Luther who spoke out against the church. Other reformers, not perfect people, but people teaching and following the light of the Bible, like Zwingli in northern Switzerland, Calvin in Geneva, along with William Farrell, John Knox of Scotland, John Wesley of England, William Tyndale, the Bible translator, many more. Go all the way back to John Wycliffe, the Bible translator from Lutterworth, England. They all agreed and many others with them, that a system of Bible teaching that directed people away from Jesus as truly Lord and Savior was something that would cause great danger down at the close of time. In fact, the Reformers pointed to the book of Revelation and spoke to today. In Revelation, you read about a beast. Now, of course, that doesn't sound like a nice thing, but it's simply a symbol. Where it says beast, it means nation. How do we know that? Remember that Revelation borrows much of its imagery from the Old Testament. That's the frame of reference John's readers had. John borrowed terms from the Old Testament. When he wanted to discuss nations, he used the same symbol Daniel had used. Daniel spoke of four nations and he said, I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. 
And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And now we read the interpretation. Daniel 7, 17. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Verse 23. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth. In fact, it goes on to say that a little horn would rise up out of the fourth kingdom, which we know is pagan Rome. Remember our sequence. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Same in Daniel 7 as Daniel 2. A little horn rises up. And those Protestant reformers I mentioned were convinced that was not the emperors of Rome, but the little horn was the church of Rome. Why did they think that? Because in Daniel 7, Daniel described the power in a number of specific ways. And many of those points are used in Revelation chapter 13, identifying the power that's going to be so influential in earth's last days. You don't want to be led away from a pure biblical faith in God. Today, people are confused. And and you know why? Because it's hard to know who to trust, who to listen to. So when it comes to your spiritual well-being, who do you listen to? Surely that answer is, we listen to God. Well, maybe you're not sure how to do that because everyone has an idea or a view or an opinion. I want to tell you this. You can't go wrong if you simply decide to trust in God. You can't. You might not always get it right the first time, but if you're honest with God and you're willing to let him lead you, he will do that. He'll lead you. He'll lead you in the path of the Bible. There is a spiritual enemy, and he's wanting to lead the world astray. It's not always going to be obvious. Paul wrote, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. That's why our trust must rest on the Bible. Forgiveness of sin? No, we don't visit a human for that. We go straight to God. That's clear. Praying to saints? Wait, praying to dead people? No, I don't think we do that. I've been invited to go straight to God with my petitions, my burdens, with whatever is on my list. Changing the law of God. We can't possibly accept that as appropriate. We can't say it doesn't matter. These are clear points. They're unambiguous. There's no need for any confusion. What's the issue in the world? There's a spiritual battle going on. A virus is causing havoc in the world. Why is that? Because long ago, a fallen angel determined to make the world as miserable as possible. He set about to prevent you and me from inheriting everlasting life. That's his goal. And some people he'll get to profess no faith in God and others he'll induce to be careless. But then there are those who want to honor God. What Satan wants to do with them is lead them to place their faith in the wrong place. Unfortunately, today, there is a system teaching traditions and errors in the place of the Bible. And the Bible identifies that as being the little horn of Daniel 7 and that first nation, that beast nation in Revelation chapter 13. And so God lovingly says, be careful, follow the Bible and not the teachings of that system, which will lead you astray. You know Jesus died for you. You're of value. It's through trusting in him that you can know your sins are forgiven and that you have a new heart. On the cross long ago, 
on the cross at Calvary, heaven demonstrated to you that God would do anything he could to reach you and save you. Sin causes death. Jesus said, I'll take that. I'll drink that cup. I'll suffer that so that she can live forever, so that he can have everlasting life. No matter how bad it seems your life has become, God is there for you. The cross still witnesses to the great love of God. How could the Son of God choose to die for broken people, for sinful people? How could he do that? Ah, but he did. He died for you and me. God's calling us to open up our hearts and look to the Lamb of God, to trust in the mercy of God. That's foreign to people who've never had a personal relationship with God. But God wants your heart. And he urges you to let him move you, move you to a place of safety. Let him move in your life. Let him bring you hope and direction for now and the future and bring blessing and bring purpose like never before. We started tonight in Washington, D.C., so let's end there. Not too many people will remember the name Arland Williams. Born and raised an hour or so south of Champaign, Illinois, he was on board Air Florida Flight 90, which crashed into the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., just after it took off on a snowy day in January of 1982. Almost everyone on that plane died in the crash, but six people initially survived. They clung to the wreckage in the frigid waters of the Potomac River. A helicopter arrived to rescue the survivors. Rescuers threw a life ring to Mr. Williams. He gave it to the person next to him. That person was taken to safety. He did it every time the helicopter returned until there were two survivors left in the water, Arland Williams and one other. When the helicopter returned and the rescue apparatus was dropped, Williams again gave it to the other passenger. When the helicopter came back for him, he wasn't there. He'd been clinging to the tail section of the aircraft and it shifted and sank further into the water. Mr. Williams went under with it. He saved the lives of others, but he gave his own life to do so. That's the story of the Bible. Jesus came to earth and did everything to save others. He gave his life for you. Not so you'd have to face an uncertain future, but so you could face every tomorrow with the hope that you are accepted and loved and looking forward to a perfect forever. Do you want that? Can you accept that? When you accept Jesus, you accept eternal life. He's coming back soon. Well, wasn't that just amazing to think that Daniel and John predicted way ahead of their time that the Christian church system would turn aside from the Bible? It gives me confidence in God and His Word. And thank God for these faithful priests and bishops in the church who bring us back to this book. Now, we know that many of you are enjoying the series Hope Awakens, but we also know that many of you are asking to go deeper. So again, we're excited to announce that very, very soon we'll be offering a number of masterclasses where you will be able to get to connect with expert teachers in various areas all across Australia and New Zealand. Now, if you are interested in joining a masterclass, take out your phone right now and text the code word LEARN, L-E-A-R-N. If you're in Australia, text LEARN to 0428 386 And if you're in New Zealand, text LEARN to 875. Again, if you're in Australia, text LEARN to 0428 833 386 Or if you're in New Zealand, text LEARN to 875. 
you'll get a reply from us with a link to a form that will give you some areas that we'll be offering masterclasses in. Check which ones you're interested in and click submit and we'll get in touch with you. Well, don't forget that tomorrow we have two programs again. Tomorrow morning at 10.30 a.m. or 10 a.m. for Central Australia, a house divided, the future at the crossroads. Then again, tomorrow night, our nightly program at the regular time when John will present Ancient Empires, Modern Mysteries. Well, that's all from me. Over to you, Rebecca. You're right, Robbie. That was an awesome program. Now, to get this evening's study guide, just go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au and click on the free offer button. Well, thanks for being with us tonight. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 10.30 a.m. or 10 a.m. Central Australia time for A House Divided, The Future at the Crossroads. And also tomorrow night at the regular time for another program titled Ancient Empires, Modern Mysteries. Good night. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning.